Welcome to Romans Untangled, a podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. This is season three, episode number two. It is not as though God's word has failed. From Romans 9, 26 to 29. We got a great episode planned for you today. We're going deep deep into the heart of Romans, into the heart of theology, into the heart of God's plan. It's really going to be fun. Pastor Steve Treichler here. I'm recording this late at night because we're having some work done, quite a few different little projects all coming to a head here, and I have to record this when there aren't workers banging on my house. Getting a new roof this week, so that should be fun before the snow flies. Excited to dive in with you. This season, we're, we're going after one person of interest in the history of Christianity. And last week we talked about Athanasius and he, his whole life, he was a person who fought against the Arians and who basically said that Jesus Christ was not fully God, that he was created and he gave his all, all of his life to preach the gospel, to remain faithful to that and to fight this heresy, this error, which could have ruined the Christian church. In fact, there was a time period in Athanasius's life that it was the predominant way that the, the, the church was thinking. And yet, by the end of his life, that's now settled. And in fact, it's been settled since around 375 AD. And so Athanasius has a lot to do with that. This week, going into another giant of the Middle Ages... Augustine or Augustine, however you say it, probably, again, uh, a black man, uh, just like Athanasius, would have been very dark skin, would have been from that region. And he is known, probably one of your most famous people of that time period. Uh, he's quoted by all kinds of people. Catholics own him, Protestants own him, philosophers own him. Uh, he is a remarkable person, probably because a lot of his writings, and he did a lot of writing, is saved uh, to this day, and we still have it. And he, he's a brilliant guy. It's interesting, though, he's not, he doesn't uh, grow up in anywhere near a Christian home. He has a uh, pagan background. His mother is involved with Christianity, but he had rejected it early on. He was more interested in, in sex and high living. He lived a wild life at his uh, in his early days. He set off to school at age 17. He went to Carthage, and he wanted to be a, a orator or someone who would who would argue cases uh, for things. And he went to school to do that. As he starts his starts his uh, career out, he gets around a Christian bishop by the name of Ambrose. And he is there hearing Ambrose preach, and he's just he's just struck by the uh, the the way that he can orate, and so he just loves to listen to Ambrose preach. However, um, he he has no interest in really <laughs> he has no interest in becoming a Christian, and yet he's starting to feel some conviction for his. Sins. In fact, just this, he writes in his most famous book called The Confessions. He writes that 
he feels bad about stealing these pears from a tr- neighbor's tree. And he says, our real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden. The evil in me was foul, but I loved it. And he was struggling with this. He started, it started really, he, he realized he couldn't change himself. And one day as he was traveling around, he was going by a garden and he thought he heard this child saying the phrase, take up and read, take up and read, like a, like a way a, uh, a child would sing a song, like a, a nursery rhyme or something like that, where they would just sing out. And he looked around and he could not see who was saying this. And he had been reading some of Paul's letters, and in particular, Paul's letter to the Romans, and he just picked it up and started reading, and this is what he read. He read from Romans 3, 13 and 14. It says, not reveling in, in and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries, rather arm yourselves, or later translations say, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetite. And later he uh, described what happened to him at that moment. And he said, no further would I read, nor needed I. For instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light as it were of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. He, He had this remarkable conversion to Christianity. And he just, he went all in from hours before, doubting it, wondering about it, and all of a sudden, it was very, very real to him. It struck every single part of his, uh, every single part of his life, his career, his relationship to Ambrose, this this bishop. Uh, he about a uh, half a year later, he was baptized, became a part of the the church there, uh, and then he travels to a place in 391 called Hippo. Uh, he, that's where he's going to spend the rest of his days. And obviously, sometimes even he's called Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. And again, his name, there's two trans, two ways to pronounce it, and you're free to, <laughs> whichever way you want to do it, I guess, is totally fine. He becomes someone who deals deeply in another controversy. Uh, shortly after he gets there, he is dealing with a controversy uh, regarding a man by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius is a British monk, and he gains popularity by rejecting the idea of original sin. In other words, he says that every single one of us starts off good, starts off right, just like Adam and Eve, and by our own free choice, we choose sin, but it's possible from that, you follow that, there isn't a need for divine grace. It's just that we must make up our minds to follow God's way. And if we do that, then we'll be fine. Well, the church excommunicates him in uh, 1417, but it, it, it starts to, it starts, this idea starts to go all over, all over the place. And, uh, Augustine gives the rest of his days to fighting this and writing some of the most important documents we have today of theology regarding how Adam's sin is imputed to us and how that isn't 
unfair. And and I, you know, that's we have another whole big theological thing to deal with today. I'm not gonna hop into that one. But Augustine does this beautiful job of spending time and fighting through error in his day. That again, um, there are very very few churches today that are Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, where that's a that's kind of a a take on that. And if you Look into some theological textbook. You can see where it's basically the idea that we just need to do good and we can always do good on our own. We don't need God. And that's just not biblical. We need, we need the Lord in order to, to do that. We are born and by nature and by choice, we are sinners. So we are born in, in the, the likeness of Adam in that there is within us a sinful nature. And yes, we do choose on our own to sin. And Augustine spends, his years uh, defeating that. He also writes several other things. Uh, uh, Carol and I, my wife and I, we we were listening to a old cassette tape series from The Great Courses on Augustine's Confessions, and they're profound, so amazing to listen through uh, that and to listen to someone kind of unpack them. In addition to that, he, he wrote about the city of God and talking about how we are heavenly citizens, even though we live in an earthly home, and that theology starts to take off as well. Augusta, Augustine of Hippo, one of the great, great Christian people in our time. Now, I said, as I talked about this in the beginning, uh, I would also just talk about people's flaws. And uh, Augustine, for all his great things, um, before he becomes a follower of Christ, he has a, it's not a wife, but it's a long-term, long-term girlfriend, and he has a child through them, and he just, he just departs them. He leaves them. He doesn't, he doesn't care for them. He doesn't care for the boy. He doesn't raise the boy. And so I, I say that because I think a lot of us can put just people of history like they, they didn't have any faults. No, he had some faults. He had some really significant faults, and yet God used him greatly. So it's, it's, a, it's a great way for us to know that we can be used as well. Okay, we're getting into it now. Romans 9. Well, last week, we looked at the first five verses where Paul is broken up about the people of Israel. And if you remember, what we were talking about is saying, that if the, we look at the Old Testament and it's the story of this people that God has called for himself, the people of Israel, and they're the ones that have gone through this and, and the whole Old Testament, we're all 39 books, right? And then we get to the New Testament and the Messiah comes. The question that Paul is struggling with, as are many other people, is why, why are there so few Jewish Christians, the, the church is mostly made up of Gentiles and a few Jewish people. And, and that's a real struggle for people. It's like, wait a minute, what, what gives here? Isn't this our story? Shouldn't we just have mostly Jews and a few Gentiles uh, worked in there? And so the question then is, if, this is, if we're really going to be people of the book, people of all 66 books, Old and New Testament, how does this fit together? That doesn't seem to make sense. And that's where we're going to pick it up this week. So first off, I just want to read this all. If you got a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and read from uh, Romans 9. We're going to do <laughs> the most uh, Bible we've done. Uh, it was one verse shy of 
when we did Romans chapter 4, it was 25 verses. This week, we're going to do 24 verses. And I know that seems like a ton. But what we're going to do today is we're not going to try to get caught up in the weeds. We're going to do what we try to do in this series, which is Romans Untangled. We're going to take the big picture view and try to untangle what's going on here. So here we go. Let's read it through. And then we're going to make comments about this. Uh, we'll, we'll go back through it. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Romans 9, uh, verse 6, all the way to the end of the chapter. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who was able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Okay, now, title of this podcast is Romans Untangled. And that means uh, that we are first going to just untangle this thing here. So, the big idea 
of Romans 9, 10, and 11, all three chapters, this whole seasons, is the question, did God's promise fail? What's going on here? What actually is happening? This whole thing seems to have been, we had plan A, and then we went to plan B, okay? And Paul is going to answer that in one way of saying it. We're looking at four things that he is going to look at. This week, we're looking at uh, chapter uh, 9, 6 through 29, and that is the first argument, and that is God's sovereignty. The second thing we're going to look at next week is picks up in verse 30, goes all the way through the end of chapter 10, and that's human responsibility. The next thing he's going to do in chapter 11, the first 10 verses, is kind of the fourth big argument, is it's, he's actually going to call to Israel, people who are Jewish, to come to faith right now. And then the last thing he's going to do for the remainder of that chapter, uh, verses 11 to 36 in chapter 11, is he's going to say the story's not over yet with Israel. God's going to do something remarkable. Okay, so this week, we're looking at number one, the first argument he has. Now, and if you are if you have your Bible with you, you want to underline verse six, the first sentence, because it says, it is not as though God's word had failed, Okay. That is the most important verse in the entire section of Romans 9 through 11. In other words, Paul is saying that God has not, God will not fail in his promises. He has made promises and they will happen. God's word has not failed, okay? So even though it looks like, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? The Jewish people aren't there as much as we had thought they should be, Paul's now going to take some time to say, hey, it's not God who failed here, okay? So let's take a look at this. The first thing he's going to do today, and uh, he, he's, he's basically going to do two things in today's passage. And the first thing he's going to do is he's just going to stop for a moment and say, let's just define what Israel means, and let's just define what promise means, okay? So that's uh, what what we we want to start with. There's going to be a second. That's going to take us through verse 13. Then when we get from 14 to the end, he's going to argue a second point. We'll get there in just a moment. So let's go after this first one. It's not as though God's word have failed. Now let's just stop. God's word of promise did not fail. So he says, let's just carefully define what exactly it is that, that God promised. And he says here in the second part of verse 6, which says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, there's two main ways people interpret this. And one is to say that Paul is saying there's there's Israel, physical Israel, and then there's spiritual Israel. And he will get there in just a moment in what he's, he's going to say. And they would say then that all believers are part of spiritual Israel and all non-believers are, uh, of the, that are Jewish are physical Israel. Okay, that's one way, and that's, it's very possible. The other way of thinking about it is, is, listen, within Israel, there's actually a spiritual Israel, those who believe, and a, a physical Israel, which just means they're linear, they're, they can trace their uh, physical descendancy back through Abraham. That's another way of looking at it, okay? Because he goes on to say, on the contrary, um, 
it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And he quotes there uh, from Genesis 21, 12. What he's getting at here is that's not Abraham's first son. His first son was Ishmael through the, the, the servant girl, right? So then Paul goes on to say, in other words, it's not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise, the ones that God promises that those things are going to take place in, right? So uh, if we skip down to verse 10 then, uh, you, you might say, well, wait a minute, that the promise was that it was going to come through Sarah and Abraham. So maybe it's just that he was only a half. Ishmael was only half of Abraham and Sarah's son. Well, in, in the second example here, you have Isaac and Rebekah, and they have twins. In fact, normally in that culture, the older son, Esau in this case, would have got the blessing. But to show that it's about God and his grace and how he moves, how he wants to move. And like Paul likes to say here in verse 12, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And so God makes a promise here and he says that I'm going to, I'm going to take the the nation of Jacob and they're going to become my nation. But Esau is not, his nation is going to be a, 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 they're not going to be part of the Jewish nation, which is so radical, right? Because you think, wait a minute, that he is, he's a physical descendant, right? In fact, that's where uh, Malachi 1, uh, 2 to 3, where it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And I lo- a lot of people have a hard time with that verse because it's like, wait a minute, God doesn't hate anybody. That's that's not exactly what it's saying here. He's just saying, my I've chosen for my purposes, which are significantly above our pay grade, I am choosing to go through Jacob, okay? So, the first thing that that uh, Paul's argument here is when he says it's not as though God's word failed is he says, listen, just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham is not a guarantee of anything. It's just not. So don't think just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham that you're in because you're not. That's his first argument. Second argument starts in verse 14. He says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And he goes through these things about talking about the election of God, the predestination of God. Uh, he'll have mercy on whom he's going to have mercy. He's going to have compassion on who's he, who's going to have compassion. He uses Pharaoh as an example, and, uh, and I think which is a great example. Pharaoh, God says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display in you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, Pharaoh, I brought you up, put you where you are, and now you're rejecting me, and this is not shocking me. I, this is I, this is according to plan here. So, and, and and if you go back in the in the Exodus account, it's fascinating because several times it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but also it says Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. And this is going to be where we're going to where we're going to land next week when we look at the the issue of of where we move with human responsibility. That how do these two fit together? And this is big time mystery. But what Paul wants to say here is that leave it as a mystery. Don't try to solve it by saying this is how God does His predestination and His sovereignty over all things. It's because well, it kind of He knows our choices ahead of time, and so therefore no. No, Paul wants to make it really clear. God is sovereign. He moves. He picks it up in verse 19, the next paragraph. And he says, then why would God still blame us 
For who's able to resist him? And Paul wants to make it real clear. Now, the fascinating thing is here, he's quoting the Old Testament. He quotes a ton of the Old Testament in this. I mean, I have to go back here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No, eight, nine, 10, 11. It's at least 11 times, I think, and maybe I missed one or two. But it is all kinds of Old Testament quotes in here. And he goes back to quote this idea of that God is the master potter, and he makes things the way he does because he gets to. He's that sovereign, right? And then this verse 22 says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? So you got to understand, people just take that verse right out of context and you have to stop and put it, keep it in its context. What's the question here? The question here is what happened to Israel? And, and Paul says, listen, he is very patient with them, but they just keep going off and off and off. And he's very patient with them. And one of the reasons Paul says for that is verse 23. What if he did this? What if he's patient with them in their destruction instead of just having his wrath come and taking them out right away? What if he does that to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So God is awesomely sovereign, awesomely sovereign in everything, including predestination of of not only uh, race, which is this means Israel and the Gentiles, but also of individuals, right? Esau, Jacob, you know, it, it's us as well. Now, I know that this doesn't solve it for you because it's like, wait a minute, how does that all work? And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Then he quotes from the Old Testament completely. And he and he says these things. He first says from, Isaiah, from Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people. Uh, he quotes that from a couple places in, in Hosea 2.23 and then Hosea 1.10. Then he goes into Isaiah and he says, though the number of Israelites be like sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth. And then he goes back and quotes from Isaiah chapter one. And he says, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we'd have become like Sodom. We'd have been like Gomorrah. And and what, what Paul's trying to get at here is he says, don't be shocked that so few people of Israel are coming in. That's actually a part of the story. Part of the story was the very people who had it the, the best failed as well. They had as close front seat to God as you could get, and they failed. They failed to see the Messiah. Now, we're going to get into why that was next week. It's fascinating. It's utterly fascinating. I can't wait to walk you through what happens starting in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. But to back this up, and I know we're going like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem really fair that God's, well, back up now. All of it's not fair, quote unquote fair, because if we got what we deserved, none of us would get salvation. No one. That'd be fair. Grace is only grace if we do nothing to deserve it. And, 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 Therefore, the fact that God does not give it to everyone, all the Jews in this case, why only so few? The fact that he doesn't do that for all the Jews is not a sign of his unfaithfulness at all. 
It's a, it's a sign of their unfaithfulness, which we'll see next week. But God is sovereign over all things, and that should give us a huge peace that God is not surprised by anything. God is not out of control in anything. Does that raise huge problems for us and questions about evil in the world or things that we've gone through or, or maybe a loved one who hasn't yet bent their knee to Jesus Christ? Yeah, it does. Sure it does. But the very fact that you ask God to move in your brother or your sister or your aunt's life to draw them to Jesus, doesn't that in itself communicate you believe in the sovereignty of God? You want God to move in a way that will go contrary to the way that they're going on their own. Now, I'm not saying that solves it for me or for you. But for me, it gives me a lot of peace to know that God's sovereign and that his sovereignty does not at all infringe on the reality that I have real choices in front of me. We've talked about this in other episodes, but we'll get after it. We'll get after it big time next week as we pick it up in Romans 9, verse 30. So this week, how does he get after the issue of, um, he, how does he get after the issue of, it's not as though God's word had failed. He says two things. First, let's really stop and say, who? what is Israel? Israel, you need to be a child of the promise and not just a physical descendant. So therefore, God is very faithful to the people who are of the promise. The second thing he says is, God is utterly sovereign. He's sovereign over all these things. And in that sovereignty, though, we have to resist the temptation to say that either God is unjust or he's unfair or that he's unfaithful to his promises because he's not. I encourage you, go back and read this passage again. There's a lot here. And it, it does make you kind of go, huh, let, it, let God's word just go into your life this week. We are going to pick it up right there. In Romans chapter 9, verse 30, as we dive into more of this question of how God's word has not failed. We'll see you next week on Romans Untangled.